uh, several sermons, I don't think six months, I hope, but uh, maybe a few to go through this. But I think it's an issue that has a lot to do with our lives and is important for us to consider. As Herbert Armstrong often said, any basis for any doctrine goes where? Revelation? Paul? Pauline theology? Where does it go? We all know the answer to that. Genesis. And in fact, the first part of Genesis. Anything that we discuss essentially has its roots in the creation story. What did Christ say when the question of divorce and remarriage and all came up in the New Testament? He said, in the beginning, it was not so. That is, what the Pharisees were promoting was not so, nor did what Moses allowed go all the way back. So Christ himself was telling us there that we need to go back to Genesis to find the root in the beginning and God's original intent. Now, he clearly allowed certain things at certain times and even instituted some things that were to be temporary, like the whole sacrificial system. He even said in Jeremiah 7.22, I didn't speak to them about sacrifice when they came out of Egypt. It was later because of disobedience that I instituted that. And then we obviously know that by now, those sacrifices have been supplanted by Christ's sacrifice itself and are, for the moment, unnecessary. There will be a time coming soon when they will be reinstituted, I think, for a period of time to help people begin to understand God and spirituality, even as God used them with the ancient Israelites. But it's very clear that God had something in mind with any subject you want to bring up. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And if we are to get the truth of a matter, we have to go back to his original intent. And then in the rest of the Bible, sometimes we have to weave through what he allowed because of the hardness of hearts for a certain time. It is not he that changed. It is we that changed. And he sometimes changed administrations and changed approaches because of the recalcitrance of mankind. But ultimately, everything is going to go back to God's original intent and purpose because He doesn't change. And He expects us to change to be like He is. And He has to put us through different things and allow different things sometimes for a time so that he doesn't have to simply wipe us out, which he did almost do once and has threatened to do again using different methods. And except for a very few elect, all flesh would be destroyed. Okay, that makes the issue that I am about to bring up a very critical issue. Now, this subject has been theorized over 
for centuries. It's been theorized over in the modern church and by the Protestants and by most Bible scholars, I suppose, at one time or another. And horror of horrors, it has to do with the two trees. What is the truth of the matter? Now, I have four things, basically, that I am considering here in the form of sermons or papers or approach uh, to look at uh, today. They are Herbert Armstrong's approach and teaching regarding the two trees, that of a sermon given by Jim Rector some years ago uh, from the research of another man, and then from what John Reitenbaugh did as a takeoff on Jim's paper, and then a recent paper that came into my possession uh, not too long ago, uh, as well as something I picked up on the internet. Uh, somebody else had a theory about some of these things. So there's no end to theories. But I think that it is critical that we understand. Now, let's look at Herbert Armstrong's approach because that's kind of the basis that most of the Church of God, and, and this will be in summary here. Uh, I, I don't want to go through all of these papers in detail. But let's look in summary at what Herbert Armstrong said. Now, he boiled it down very simply to, there were two trees. You've heard him say that dozens of times. Uh, and when all was said and done, he equated it to a way of give or of get and give, I guess. He equated the tree of the knowledge of good and evil to the get way of life, and the tree of life to the give way of life. Now, I have no problem with saying that there are two, essentially two, ways of life. That of selfishness and taking and getting, and that of philanthropy or giving out or producing for or service too. Those are two general ways of life. And the world, of course, is on the get track of most anywhere you want to imagine. And even when they do give, there's usually a string or two or five attached that brings something back to them. It isn't giving by letting, not letting your right hand know what your left hand is doing. And human nature is that way. Sometimes someone can appear giving until you analyze the whole situation, if you understand it, and usually there's a string or two attached. It is hard for us to give without wanting something in return. That's just the human sphere. Now, there could be a problem in what Mr. Armstrong did, uh, did you ever notice in Genesis that it says that there was a tree of the knowledge of good? Did I say that? The tree of the knowledge of good. And it says, and evil. But that tree imparted a knowledge of good. And yet, in summation, I, I'm not, I didn't go back and review everything he said, and I don't know exactly how he got there, just standing here at the moment. 
But he essentially consigned the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as an evil or get tree. His final summation did not include the good. Now, most have postulated over the years, one way or another, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil equates to the law. We will examine that carefully. Now, here's a discrepancy. Herbert Armstrong summarized that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a get way of life, and yet he always said that the law needed to be kept. What he was overlooking was that it does say the knowledge doesn't say it was an evil tree. It was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And partaking of it could produce, and with Adam and Eve, would produce death. Now, what's the explanation of that? How can you call it an evil tree when it is a knowledge of good and there's nothing wrong with that, is there? And yet, it could produce death at the same time. I guess what I'm saying is he oversimplified it somewhat and left some part out that is important for us to understand. Now, there are three things, essentially, that can tell us that that tree was good. When God had finished the creation, he looked and said, it is very good. Now, that tree was created during that period of time, and it was then called very good. Was it not? It is named the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, is the good bad? The evil is bad. But there's some good there somehow, some way, isn't there? If it was an all-evil tree, why didn't he just call it the tree of evil and say, don't touch it? The tree of death, don't touch it. It was more than that. The name says so. Now, it's said also that if they partook of that tree, they would become like God with a knowledge of good and evil. Now, God, from that statement, knows both good and he knows and understands evil. Now, if you partook of that tree and you became as God and yet at the same time died, there's a conundrum there. There's, there's a problem that needs to be explained. So I think you can see from those comments that Herbert Armstrong, though he had a good analogy, it didn't completely fit the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. So there's some questions there, and I'm not going to get to a full explanation of that now. I'm just summarizing what these people said, first of all, so that we might understand what some of the problems are and then find a solution. Now let's uh, summarize Jim Rector's paper. Uh, I think that it is certainly a paper that has a great deal of good information in it. Uh, 
he mentions that both trees were good for food and some of the same comments I made that cause a problem with Herbert Armstrong's teaching, uh, but that it would produce death if they ate it. And yet it was good for food, he says. Now, how do you merge those two thoughts? I already brought it up, but he brings it up as well. And I don't have much problem with Jim Rector's paper. I think he was essentially on. He went into some things uh, that are good. Uh, he spent a great deal of time in his sermon and the paper that was passed around here talking about where was the Garden of Eden. And I think that that is a good study, and he gave a lot of good insight on it. He indicated it was at Mount Moriah, uh, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and I think provided pretty good background for that being the case. Uh, yet the river Euphrates, known then and now, comes out of Turkey. And they use that as one of the rivers. Well, it doesn't headwater anywhere near the city or the yeah, the city of Jerusalem as we know it today, or the so called promised land at all. In fact, there are no rivers out of there. The Tigris, the Euphrates, come out of Turkey. There's some that go to north out of the mountains in Turkey. The mountains in Turkey are very high mountains, very dense mountains, and they produce a lot of water, a lot of snow. And there are rivers coming out of them from every direction. I read an article recently, which I referred to on the Internet, in which one fellow gave a pretty good case of the Garden of Eden being in the mountains of Turkey. Because of where the rivers head water, and because of a valley up there that the waters come out of, and he made a pretty good case for the Garden of Eden being in the mountains of Turkey. And, of course, a lot of people believe that the Noah's Ark is in the mountains of Turkey on the mountain now called Ararat. And that could be. And I have a reason for saying that, and we will get to that, not today, but probably when we get back to Ezekiel, which I hope is not too far from now, and into that particular subject. And it does not create a contradiction between what we now believe over here in the promised land of Ephraim and the biblical and historical and archaeological story that is found in the Middle East. Those can be joined together, hand in hand, without a problem, and still everything of importance having happened over here. More later on that. I don't have time to get there, and it's off the topic somewhat. But what Jim presented in terms of the environs of Jerusalem, wherever that is, uh, is good information. But you have to find the rivers somehow, and you have to put it all together. The geography has to fit. Um, okay, the Bible does indicate that the Temple Mount at Jerusalem, and I have always believed the Garden of Eden was in the environs of Jerusalem. I don't have a problem with that. And I think that that can be, in fact, demonstrated. But where is Jerusalem? That's another question. Uh, let's see. Jim, 
also spent a great deal of time in symbolism, showing the pattern of heavenly things, as Paul mentioned in Hebrews 8 and 9, and how they fit with the Garden of Eden, uh, with the Ark of the Covenant. You had the tree in the middle of the garden, which represented life. That represents, in that sense, the Holy of Holies that was in the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, the tree of life, uh, he indicates, could have been an almond tree because it was uh, rods, uh, Aaron's rod that budded. It was almond. The almond tree is known as the one that begins to blossom earliest in the spring. Uh, in other words, new life begins uh, with the almond tree, so eternal life could. I think those analogies are sound. Uh, he quotes 1 Corinthians 28, 11, and 19 on that as well. Uh, so, the midst of the Garden of Eden would be the tree of life. Within the Ark of the Covenant, or the tabernacle, you had the Holy of Holies. You had the mercy seat and presence of God. Aaron's rod, which represents, in that sense, judgment coming from God in the Holy of Holies. Remember, what was put in the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle, in the wilderness? It had Aaron's rod that budded. It had the manna which he, I don't know whether Jim equated that to Christ or not, the bread of life, uh, John Reitenbaugh did. It had the Ten Commandments in it. Now, if you're going to use this analogy of the Ark of the Covenant, the things in Eden representing the Ark of the Covenant, and later on the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple, and have a consistent analogy, the important things of Eden would be in the Ark of the Covenant, right? Now, these are my comments here. Why was the Ten Commandments there if the tree of life represented evil? If the commandments are no good and done away or not to be paid attention to, why were they in the Ark of the Covenant? Well, of course, for the Old Testament. Is that the end of the story? Within there, you had a representation of life, the tree that budded, or the branch that budded. You have the Ark of the Covenant, I mean the, uh, the Manabole, the Ten Commandments, all key, ultimately, to salvation. Now, what God created, Jim and John are saying, is a pattern of heavenly things, as Paul clearly shows, would be done on the earth. In the Garden of Eden, I believe they are correct. In the Ark of the Covenant, it's brought forward. Solomon's temple is brought forward. And in Ezekiel's temple it is as well. Whenever it is built, it hasn't been yet. And in the new heavens and new earth of Revelation 21. God the Father being in the middle of the tree of life there. The river's coming out just like Eden. And... Life represented there, the Holy of Holies with the Father and the Son dwelling there, judgment going out from there, Christ being there as that way of to enter into life. And it is very clear in Revelation 21 and 22 that the commandments will be kept. So the symbol symbolization from Genesis through Revelation is the same. And all those elements are there in each era. We shall see.
Now, Jim also brought in, and this is something that had not been in the church that I know of before, and that is that Christ probably was crucified on a living green tree. I'm not going to go into all the proof of that. Uh, Very likely, it was what kind of tree? An almond tree. If the original was an almond and was represented in the Ark of the Covenant as an almond, then the pattern would have to fit that he was crucified on an almond tree and that it was a live tree. There are quite a few references in the New Testament, and I will not go there, referring to Christ having been hung on a tree. Now, we interpreted that to mean a piece of a dead tree that was stuck in the ground. But the research here shows that it may have been indeed a tree that was still there, still alive, and then maybe a cross piece put on it. Uh, Something of that nature was carried there that they were hung on on the tree itself. Uh, Go back and read Jim's information. I think it is very good. Uh, And he substantiates these things. I'm just summarizing and going through it. I'm not even trying to prove it to you. But you can see how the symbolism could fit all the way through. If it's in one spot, it has to keep appearing. Otherwise, the symbolism breaks down, doesn't it? Now, Jim spends quite a bit of time on how good the law is, quotes quite a few scriptures to show that the law is holy and just and good and leads to life and so on and so forth. We'll get more to that later. Uh, here's you a clue, though. Living the law is good. Breaking it is to die. Now, here's Jim's essential conclusion. I, I mean, I can't bring it all together, but in his summary, he indicates that it is a matter of law and grace. Now, some people then try to brand those trees, one law, the other grace, as such, and Truly, as I have understood it and as the church has, that it is a combination of law and grace, not law or grace. And Jim understood that. Uh, So essentially, he was a cut above the Protestant law or grace by recognizing law and grace. Both are needed. So he essentially had a good conclusion. But I think more can be added to clarify our relationship to the law and grace and of salvation today. So I'm not trying to put down what Jim had to say, but I think that we can add some things to it and perhaps clarify this picture a little later. Let's look at John Rottenbaugh a little bit. Uh, He addresses, and in fact, he started his series, I think, pretty much from Jim's paper and added a great deal of interesting detail. John Reitenbaugh, if nothing else, uh, is able to put, in most cases, symbolism together in great detail and to add and flesh out quite a bit to the analogies that, uh, that Jim was giving and, in fact, confirms a lot of what Jim was saying in terms of uh, the almond tree, and uh, the symbolism of the Ark of the Covenant, and so on. So, 
he says, essentially, that the tree of good and evil represents the law, but the law cannot of itself bring salvation. And that no one has ever been saved by keeping the law. Now let me add a thought and a question here a little bit. Christ did keep the law perfectly. He never broke it. He never sinned. The only one to ever accomplish that. Now, sin brings death, doesn't it? The penalty of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. Romans, for, uh, now I can't say it. I got mixed. Oh, I'm trying to say 1 John 3, 4, I guess. The wages of sin is death. Or is that? I got Romans 6 and 7 confused with it. It doesn't matter. That's what the Scripture says. So, he would not have done anything that would have caused death in his life, would he? He would have, on his own, having kept the law perfectly, not died. Because breaking the law brings death. Now, Paul said that if you say you have to keep the law, then you have to keep the whole law. And there is a lot of confusion over that. But Christ never in his life broke the law at all, therefore did not deserve to die. Therefore, he would have had to have been given eternal life, right? He did nothing to cause his death. So keeping the law can bring life, can it not? What causes death? Breaking it. Well, then why did Christ have to die? He didn't based on his own life and his own merits. The only reason he had to die was because of you and me. Our sins, and he died in our place. He took our place on the tree. So our sins killed him. But it nevertheless remains that had our sins not been laid on him, he would have continued living. Now, he may have at some point been changed back to spirit and lived an eternal life that way. So it's not quite true to say that the law can not bring life. Because he kept it and deserved to live. Now that doesn't mean much to us because we've all already broken it. So it's too late to worry about that. Now we have to be concerned about whether his blood covers our sins so that we can live. So there's no question Christ is the key ingredient here. Now, had Adam and Eve not sinned, they eventually would have been given eternal life, the other tree. Notice that God didn't say, don't partake of that. He said, every tree in the garden you may eat of except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That means that the tree of life was available to them, doesn't it? Now, Jim says that the Jews, Jim Rector, says that the Jews' tradition is that they were in the garden seven years before they partook of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he himself 
believes or believed that uh, it must have been a matter of years. Herbert Armstrong speculated that right after the first Sabbath on Sunday morning, Satan appeared and tempted them. Now, which is correct? Now, this enters the realm of speculation, certainly, in everybody's part, and including mine. But uh, John Reitenbaugh speculated that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a fig tree, and he quoted several scriptures in Mark and other places in the New Testament we won't go to here. You can look at his sermons. Uh, now, if you've got a fig tree in the yard, or in the garden, sooner or later, you're going to look at those figs and you're going to try one. And there was no reason not to, because God said that tree was available. Now, here's what I think, and I may be wrong, but I think that Herbert Armstrong was probably right. Now, maybe in the middle of the garden, the tree of life was here, and the tree of good and evil was here, and Satan got between them and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, and got to them before they ever had a chance to even find the tree of life. Because in seven years, I think, and they went to the middle of the garden, if it represents the Holy of Holies in symbolism, it is the middle of the garden where God would have talked with them, because that's the part He would have dwelled in, based on the analogy of the Holy of Holies in the Ark of the Covenant, and in Solomon's temple, and in the temple to come. So, they weren't on the edge of the garden, they were on, in the middle of the garden with God. So the access to both those trees would have been very easy and, in fact, the center of attention. I think, see, they had not sinned. There was no death on the horizon. So they were still in a condition that could have allowed them to have eternal life, not having sinned. So, in that pristine, unsinning condition, had they made it to the tree of life, God would have had to give them eternal life. It was made available. But Satan short-circuited it. And I cannot find in my imaginary world that Satan would have waited seven years and that they would not have found that tree within seven years. It just doesn't seem to fit the story. I think Satan was Johnny on the spot. He is with you and me, isn't he? Isn't he right there in any split second to take our mind where it shouldn't go? You bet he is. And he was there too, unless God prevented it, and I don't think God would have in this case, because this story had to play out as it played out. Okay? I wanted to interject those thoughts. I'm sure we'll get back to them uh, when I get into what I have to say about this. Okay, let's see. John also mentioned that the crucifixion was outside the gate where the sinners are, not where God is that it was on the shoulder of Mount Moriah, within sight of, 
the center of Jerusalem whence judgment comes. So God had a view of Mount Moriah out of Jerusalem, uh, and Christ had to be outside the gate because sin would not be allowed inside the gate. And that, of course, is brought forth in the New Jerusalem in Revelation 21 as well, that uh, the sinners are left outside the gate. Well, this isn't after the new heavens and new earth, if you will, because there will be no humans left then, according to traditional Church of God doctrine. But if the kingdom comes down at the beginning of the millennium and the new Jerusalem, then there will still be sinners around. They're just simply not allowed inside. The sinners stay outside, and Christ was outside the camp, not inside when he died. All right, here is John Reitenbaugh's summary at the end of his third sermon. He said, Eden in general is the promised land. So Eden was a big land. You have two things. You have Eden and you have the garden in Eden. We think of Eden perhaps in our minds often as just a garden, but no, Eden was an area and there was a garden within Eden called the Garden of Eden. So both were there. He says that Eden was on Moriah in the east of Eden, and that Moriah was the Temple Mount, and that God's house was in the midst of the garden, which then equates to the Holy of Holies and, and in the, Ark of the, in the uh, tabernacle and in the temple. He also shows that the red heifer altar on the southern peak of the Mount of Olives was in view of the mercy seat or the place of judgment of God as the temples were set up. In Jerusalem, set up the same way. If you read about Ezekiel's Jerusalem in Ezekiel 40 to 48, you read about the new Jerusalem in Revelation 21, and you will find that Christ enters from the east, uh, that the judgment was there in the Holy of Holies and so on. So it was in the east of Eden. Uh, and the red heifer altar was nearby where sin was judged and defeated. Christ was sacrificed at the same place, apparently the red heifer was sacrificed in Israel's time, because he is the one who separates the good from the evil, which is what the red heifer did. In other words, Christ is our red heifer, which purifies us of sin. The red heifer had to be completely red. That's what the Jews are looking for, one that doesn't have a black hair on it just like Christ was perfect. And then he summarizes that God is a grand designer, so whatever he designed in the Garden of Eden had to be carried forward through the uh, trials in the wilderness and the Ark of the Covenant, Solomon's Temple, and all the way through. But all of his efforts since creation and focused on one precise area, the promised land, Eden within the promised land, and the garden and its inhabitants, that is, human beings from the Garden of Eden forward, uh, and that the judgment will ultimately include all who have ever lived and repented of their sins against the government of God, and the roots of all this begin in Eden and move forward. 
Now there are some who speculate about uh, half-men or Cro-Magnons or pre-humans or whatever before the flood, and Herman Hay, and he went into some strange things, we find, found out, uh, believed that there were missing links before God created Adam and Eve. And known as humanoids by some scientists, we called them hermanoids because he brought it up. But you know what? None of that matters. The missing link has not been found anyway. We haven't found any humanoids yet. Uh, so far, they don't exist. Now, to me, it really doesn't matter. It's not worth my time. The story, the focus of God has been from the Garden of Eden forward. That's where he starts the history of man and our history and our story, and that is all that matters to us. So, how long were the dinosaurs here? Was the earth created in seven days, literally, or was it in billions and billions of years? It's neither here nor there. It's a moot point. Who cares? It doesn't matter. All that matters is from Adam and Eve in a garden until Christ returns to this earth. That's all you and I need to be concerned about. Now, if you have excess time and nothing else to do and want to speculate and study those things and go look at dinosaur tracks, go for it. But I doubt if you have enough time to worry about it. Yeah, I've seen Kent Hovind, and I've seen things on both sides, and I'm looking at one, and it makes sense, and I look at the other, well, that makes sense too. But it doesn't matter, okay? Let's focus on those things that do matter. Now, let's go to this latest paper that I examined and put me on track to examine this whole thing again and try to put it all together as best we can, perhaps add some what to Jim and John had to say to flesh it out a bit more. Now, this latest one says that the tree of good and evil represents the law and brings death, and that there is no question it is an evil tree. It will kill you. Do not touch Run immediately to the tree of life, grab hold, and hang on. That's the basis thesis, basic thesis of this paper. Tree of life represents eternal life, and the conclusion about the law of God, his statutes, his ordinances, is that they are no longer necessary to keep. You don't have to keep any of the laws because the tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents the law and it will kill you. So have nothing to do with either the tree of G&E or the law of God. So the one who wrote this said you just need to hang on to Jesus and eternal life, and all will be well. And all you need is the Holy Spirit, and it will help you rightly divide right from wrong and produce the fruit of the Spirit, and everything will be good. And what it also promotes, basically, is situation ethics. There is no law that is extant or needful. 
And therefore, when you get in a particular situation, whatever it may be in life, that you do not need a moral compass or guide such as the law, it was only a school teacher that took us to Christ and then it was wiped away because now we have Him and through the Holy Spirit we will always make the right decision. Is that true? That is basically Protestantism 101, is what that is. I think that the author of this paper thought it was something new he was bringing up. No, it's the oldest thing around in terms of Protestant doctrine and belief, is that the law is done away. You don't have to do any of that. Just have love in your heart, and the Holy Spirit will impart love in your heart, and you will always make the right decisions. I won't and you won't. Now, you are a bunch of people here that have the Spirit of God. Does it always lead you to do the right thing? Are you always led of the Spirit? Or does sometimes your human nature take hold and you were led of the flesh? Love isn't always in your heart, is it? Giving is not always in your heart. Sometimes get is. See, Herbert Armstrong had some good elements there. Jim and John had a lot of good elements and I think basically a proper presentation. I think we can add some to it. Now, I know that the writer of that paper believes that the Sabbath the holy days, any of the laws do not need to be kept now, but they will be kept in the millennium. I guess in order to again lead people as a schoolmaster to Christ, and then they won't be needed anymore because they'll have the Spirit and they'll always make the right decisions. He is so much in our hearts, we don't need any law Anything to tell us what is good, what is evil, what is right or wrong, the Spirit will lead us there. Now, do Protestants always do the right thing? They believe that, heart, mind, body, and soul, don't they? It's grace only, no law, just grace. Good favor of God. And they, but they do believe in the law in a way, don't they? I don't know of any Protestant church that teaches that it's okay to go out and murder and to lie and to steal, to commit adultery, to do all those things that the law tells you not to do. They understand on some level that those aren't good things to do. Well, how do they know that? Is it by nature? Well, Christ, I mean, it says even, even the Gentiles without the law sometimes recognize a certain amount of right, but it isn't enough. All right, let's summarize this. Herbert Armstrong said, the tree of good and evil is get, and the tree of life is give. Bad tree, good tree. And yet, at the same time, he believed in keeping the law, so if the Law defines good and evil, 
and it's to be kept, how can you say that the tree of good and evil is essentially the get? And get is not good. It is not a mixture. A way of get is a bad way to live. So there are some problems there. Some unanswered questions. Rector believed law and grace. The law is still good and should keep it. He had much on location of Eden and the symbolism. His conclusion was a harmonizing of law and grace, which I believe to be correct. John Reitenbaugh gave us, again, much symbolism, which was good, and that good and evil symbolizes the law, essentially. But we need Christ and grace to bring salvation, which is also very true. The new paper says that good, the tree of good and evil and the law produce death. Avoid it like the plague. Don't touch it. It's like a hot stove. Don't have anything to do with the law of God and the ordinances of God. Basically Protestant. Which of these views are correct? Is there a bigger picture? Is there more that can be understood? What can be added to help clarify it and merge it all together in something that makes sense? Well, I'll tell you my take right off the bat is that Jim Rector and John Reitenbaugh basically had the best analysis of the four by far. Herbert Armstrong, you might say, was half right in that the tree of life represents a way of give and life, and it does. And he could be kind of half right about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he says that it, or through it, <laughs> the law is still alive. And yet he still says in his summary that it's a way of get, which would make it bad. So really with his final conclusion, I'd say he's about half right in spite of the fact that he retained the law. And this latest paper is essentially Protestantism rehashed and, re and embellished a bit and has no credence whatsoever. <coughs> now, I can arbitrarily give my opinion <coughs> about these four papers and how much is my opinion worth. My opinion's about like your opinion. Everybody has one and it isn't worth a whole lot. So, what do we do? How do we get to the bottom of this? Is there a bigger picture? <coughs> what does God expect of us today? How does it relate to our lives as opposed to just theology or understanding? How does the actual meaning of the trees affect us? How does the symbolism affect us? What does it all mean in view of what God expects of you and me today? That's the bottom line I want to get to. If Genesis is the basis for all doctrine, and I believe it is, then we need to get to the bottom of it and understand once and for all. So, where are we going to find the answers to the questions that still remain? I find it interesting that the last paper hardly mentioned Scripture. There were a few references, or quite a few references back and forth, but didn't mention much Scripture. Human reasoning. Now, 
The Bible is written here a little, there a little, Isaiah 28, that we might understand. All Scripture is given for inspiration, for doctrine, for reproof, instruction, and righteousness. The place we have to go to find the full answer is the Scripture. No amount of analogies, no amount of human reasoning, no amount of anything except Scripture means anything because this contains everything we need to know. So if something is so basic in Genesis, then it has to be reflected in the rest of the book to find out God's original intent, His true purpose, sort through it all, and find out how it started and why, and where it will end up, and what comes in between. Those are all things that we have to consider in this doctrine. Now, this is probably the shortest sermon I've given in a long time, but I'm done. I don't want to get into this today because uh, I, I want, once we get into it, I want to go fully through it. But I wanted to introduce this and let you see that there are a lot of varying opinions and theories on the subject of the two trees. And the ones I gave you are only the beginning. There's more. But they do basically boil down to these categories, essentially. So I think that uh, we can see what questions may have arisen here and then see if we can get something that makes sense that is not so simplified that it leaves out a great deal and yet not so complicated that you go out, walk away saying, what was that all about? Let's see if we can make it simple and understandable and equate to us and still have correct doctrine come out of it. Well, that's my goal and my purpose. I would appreciate your prayers that God will lead me to understand this and be able to present it in such a way as to make a clarification and to give us perhaps a better overall picture and add something to the picture that Jim and John gave. I'm not trying to refute them, because I think most of what they gave was good information, fine information. But there may be a little more to the picture than was presented in those papers. So we'll go from there.